Glad to see you here today, and uh, glad to see the, some of the front uh, row chairs be used today. It's good. Those are lonely. They're like new, okay? So you got the, you got the best chairs in the house. Um, my name is Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel, and I get the privilege most Sunday mornings to, to be here on the South Campus. So if you're visiting with us, I add my welcome to Todd's welcome, and I don't believe you're here by accident in any way, so I trust you'll intersect with exactly what God has for you today. If uh, you got your Bibles, if you've got them, go to Luke chapter 2 or your smartphones or iPads or um, what have you. If not, we've got, we'll have the verses up on the screen. But we are in the month of December here. We are looking at the four Advent Sundays, and we are talking about Jesus as a gift. Um, last week, we looked at Jesus as the gift to the Magi. And this week, we will consider um, Jesus as a gift in Luke chapter 2. So he, um, not just Mary, although we'll look at Mary for a minute, we'll talk more about Mary next week, Uh, but mostly we want to focus in on uh, the gift to the shepherds, the nobodies, uh, the not wanteds, Um, and we'll see how I think, how God's grace will burst through into their world and into their night, and uh, they will receive the gift of Jesus, His gracious gift. So it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful story. In fact, Luke chapter 2 is my favorite uh, portion of all this, the Christmas stories. We, as a family, I read it on um, Christmas morning. We usually read it here as a congregation on Christmas Eve night, and it's just this beautiful telling. It's very familiar to us, but it is simple, and it is profound. It also reminds me of one of my other favorite Christmas stories, and I talked about it, um, oh, a couple of years ago, but it's the story written by Barbara Robinson, uh, the best Christmas pageant ever. Anybody read this book? Okay. If you don't have it, you should get it. You should read it to your kids or your grandkids or, or just read it on your own. Uh, you don't have to tell anybody. Um, it's great. I mean, it's, it's, it's great. So it's a story about this family called the Herdmans, and it opens up this way. She describes them. She says, the Herdmans were the worst kids in the whole history of the world. And they lied and stole and smoked cigars, even the girls, and talked dirty and cussed to their teachers and took the name of the Lord in vain and set fire to Fred Shoemaker's old broken-down tool house. And the six Herdmans, she goes on, they don't have a father, Their mother has two jobs, they steal lunches, they get in fights, they never really bathe. Um, Pretty much they run wild and terrorize the other kids at school. And as the, the story opens, you find that church is the safe place. All the other kids feel that church is the safe place for them because the herdmans would never darken the door of the church. And yet... Somebody let out to the Herdmans that after Sunday school, they served cookies and Kool-Aid. So they decide they're going to go check this thing out. And not too long after they start going, they, uh, the, the church begins to advertise that it's going to have its Christmas pageant. And the Herdmans decide that they want to try out for this. Well, this creates a scandal not just in the church, but all the townspeople, because um, these were not model Christians, much less model citizens, all right? And um, the parents are all rebelling against the idea of the herdmans being cast in the pageant, particularly Ralph and Imogene, 
as Mary and Joseph. Um, in fact, nobody would let their infant play Jesus to be taken care of by them. Um, everyone assumes that it's going to be a disaster. Well, the story's great because it, it ends with, um, you know, how it ends. They, they experience the surprising grace of this Christmas story that we're going to read here in just a moment. And, and you, you realize, and I think this is the author's point of it, is that the herdmen's, you know, as rough and tumbly as they are, they're exactly the type of people to whom Jesus came to, to the fringe, you know? feel outcast, you feel lonely, you feel like a nobody, you feel not wanted, you're in just the right place. The Herdmans will end up crashing into the surprising grace of Jesus. We will see that these shepherds do the same. I'm going to begin reading in Luke chapter 2 verse 1 if you'll follow along with me. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David. to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The angel said to them, Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was a, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He's pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known to them the saying that had been told them uh, concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they heard and seen as it had been told to them. It's the reading of God's Word. You know, the first thing I want us to see is that God is sovereign over all the events of our life. You find that out in the first couple of verses. In fact, it's kind of this very subtle thing that Luke is telling us, but it 
it begins by giving us this marker. Uh, Luke begins uh, the account by, by setting the stage of world history. He begins it with this imperial edict of Caesar Augustus. But what we find out is that the events that follow, they're not owing to Caesar. God is the author of these events. It's the sovereignty of God that's in view in the story. The most powerful man in the world is simply a pawn in the story of God. See, we know the story. I mean, so we know what's supposed to happen, that the child's to be born in Bethlehem. That's what the prophets say. Micah 5, 2, that's where he's going to be born, written 600, 700 years before Jesus is born. The, the wise men discover it because the religious leaders know it. We looked at that last week. The, the lineage, the, the family that the Messiah was to be born in was the lineage of David. That's from, that's from Bethlehem. So we know the story and the question comes, well, why, why a girl from Nazareth then? Some 90 miles away five, six-day journey. Why is it a teenage girl that's visited by the Holy Spirit in Nazareth? I mean, this virgin, she's not from Bethlehem. she's, She's all the way on the other side of the country. I mean, why not, for the sake of ease, for crying out loud, pick one in Bethlehem? Why does the story begin in Nazareth and not Bethlehem? Well, I think this is because God God is going to choose to exert His rule. God's going to get the glory. And what looks like an act of Caesar is actually a perfectly timed move of God because all things are under His control and all movements are by His hand, which reminds us this morning that, that God is not efficient as much as we want Him to be. I mean, as much as we want to help God write the story, we, we have to remember this is His story. It's His plan. Your life fits into His plan. He, he doesn't fit into your plan. I mean, so from before the foundations of time, which means before there were heavens and, and before there was the earth and before there was the sun and the moon and the stars, before there was such a thing as time and space and a 24-hour day, God ordained this day. Before the creation of man, God planned the incarnation. God created what would become, and He would ordain the day His Son would enter the world. You know, as Caesar sat in his palace and made his decree, I am sure he thought he was exercising the supremacy of his own will. But actually, he was just a tool in God's hand. Because God had promised that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And God's making sure that promise would be fulfilled. Well, the the other thing you see is not just God's sovereignty in all situations, not just the the situations written about in Luke, but in, in all the situations in our life as well. We also see that God is going to to forge a a beauty 
in the midst of incredible humility and weakness and might be what I'd call loneliness. So I argue that maybe the story here is where it is most profound. The the most significant act of God comes in the most simple and lonely way. See, we've come to think in the last hundred years that the most important events on this planet are the ones that get covered by the news. We have come to believe that the most important people on this planet are the ones that are wealthy and powerful and famous. And and yet the Bible doesn't see things that way at all. In fact, I'd argue that, that a world peace summit held among the nations is not nearly as significant as a father or a mother or a grandfather or grandmother opening God's Word with their family. Not as significant as if you're serving in the church and you volunteer and you're leading a group of six-year-olds or a group of sixth-graders around God's Word and, and helping them understand the deep and profound significance of God's love for them. See, those are the most significant moments. See, one of the the striking things about Luke's narrative is how simple it is in contrast with how great the events are. So, interesting. So, when my oldest daughter was born, Maggie, um, it it was a party. I mean, it was a celebration. I mean, the delivery room was filled with nurses. Uh, the doctor who delivered her was there. The, the pediatrician popped in. You know, I had to kick the grandmothers out. The, the lobby was filled with people doing line dances and had balloons and cigars and, you know, cameras and video cameras and when we used to have those things. Leslie, she was high on drugs and I mean, it was awesome. That's not this story. That's, that's not this scene that Luke gives us. He gives us a teenage girl. He, the, the man, if, if he was even a man, you know, he's an old teenager. I mean, his frontal lobe hadn't even developed. They're in an animal stable, and they're alone. We don't get much detail beyond that. Maybe it's because, you know, as Luke, he tells us at the beginning of his gospel that he's interviewed everybody. You know, he's made a thorough study. He's he's, he's like a journalist. He's examined all the facts out there. I'm sure he talked to Mary about it. I mean, the experience is common enough to any woman who's delivered a child. There's not much detail. But we know it's simple and it's... And they're alone. And the child is born... And then she wraps the child tightly in a cloth, and then she lays him in a feed trough. You know, we, we think about that, and then the picture of our nativity scenes and all, you know, when we have our pageants, you know, they, they're, they're wooden troughs, but it's not like, it's not what it was. If you were to go there today to Bethlehem, you'd go and you'd see that there are caves that shepherds used to use to keep their sheep in or, or around the hillsides, and, and so they would put their sheep in, they would put their livestock in, it would keep them safe, and, and there would usually be a, a trough that was hewn out of the stone that would hold water or hold feed.
Unto us a child is born. But a son is given. God entered the world. The peace between heaven and earth just began. So you can go there today. You can go to Bethlehem. You can go to the cave. There's a a church built around it. You can go with us to Israel sometime. It's the church of the nativity. And it's six miles from Jerusalem, and you, you, can, you can walk right in it. The, the door to get into the church of the nativity is, it's, it's, it's a low, it's a small door. In fact, to, to go in, you have, to, you have to kind of bend down to get in through the door. Uh, most people, it, it's been, because of that, it's called the door of humility, but it, it was probably built that way to keep you know, people from riding their horses into it. But it is great symbolism. But I'll tell you something about that church. I don't really like it. Not because of what it was or what it stands for, but because of what it has become. It's, it's, you go there and it's like a circus. It's a, it's a bazaar. You know, eternity steps into history. God becomes man. We sell souvenirs. Well, verse 19 tells us what Mary did. She, she treasured these things in her heart. She, she pondered them. She, she weighed them. She meditated on them. She, she treasured it. She worshipped. We don't do that enough. I mean, we, we Facebook, we Twitter, we Instagram, we Snapchat, we did all those things. We, 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 we hurl it out there for the world to comment but we don't sit and reflect and treasure and worship. I think the reason that Mary treasured these things in her heart because the night was too holy for words. I mean, it was simple. It was lonely. It was holy. It was glorious. She treasured it. And the truth is that if you're a believer this morning, There are moments that God has broken into your world. I mean, holy moments. Do we treasure them? Do we hang on to them? Do we ponder them? Do we worship? Is there a sense of this deep, abiding intimacy with God that's too great for words? The surprising, overwhelming grace that comes into her life. Mary's a great model for us here. I mean, don't, don't let the, the season go by and, and not sit and, and ponder and, and, and treasure. Ask God to, to break in to the season for you. Well, you get to the, to the scene I want to focus on, and it begins in verse 8. The same region where the shepherds were. They're out in a field and they're keeping watch over their flocks at night. The baby's born, the scene changes here, and we're we're taken to the to the hillside outside of the city. And it's nighttime, and there's a group of shepherds there. And then an angel appears, and he is this angel, the first preacher of the gospel. And that's what that's what it means. I, 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 I bring you good news of great joy. 
Now listen, regardless of what you've seen on TV, angels are scary. You know why you know that? Every time you see an angel in the Bible, you know what they say? Fear not! (laughs) They say that because they're terrifying. I mean, they have come from the presence of God, and now you're looking at them. Shepherds didn't have the greatest reputation. Humble in status, nobodies, lived among the somebodies. That's who they were. The angel stands before them and says, Fear not. I'll tell you something to look for this season. Anybody ever watched the Charlie Brown Christmas special? It's great. I mean, it's not my favorite, but um, it's great. Uh, Scrooge is much more my favorite, but uh, not everybody can be Bill Murray, okay? But the Charlie Brown Christmas special, it's a particular favorite in my household. I can say that. My, the fact that I just witnessed two nights ago my daughter and my wife uh, reciting every line of it. And um, so I'm sitting there and I'm like, I, I just do not know this movie that well. So I'm, they're watching it and reciting it. Um, which is like s- sort of surround sound stereo happening uh, there. And so I'm looking it up, and I'm like, you know, okay, what's the story behind this? And I, I mean, I know about Charles Schultz, I know about Peanuts, all that stuff, and was looking. I found the most interesting thing. So it was an interview with Schultz, and he was talking about Peanuts, he was talking about the characters, and there's a little bit of him and all the characters. But, but he says the, the, the character that I most identify with is this character, Linus. He's Charlie's best friend, Lucy's sister. And you know Linus is the one he carries the security blanket everywhere and sucks his thumb. But he's also the intellectual. He's the theologian. Schultz said, you know, of all the characters, you're probably most like Linus. And in all the cartoon strips and in all the productions of it or whatever, you always see Linus with his security blanket except for one time. Charlie Brown will say in the Charlie Brown Christmas special, he gets fed up, can anybody tell me the meaning of Christmas? Linus chimes in and says, I I can. Then he comes to the stage and the spotlight comes on him and he says, dim the lights, please. And he begins to recite the Christmas story, the one we just read. And when he gets to the place of fear, not. You can look for it. He drops his blanket and puts his hands up. And it's as though Schultz is saying in that moment, look, all the insecurities, all the doubts, everything fades away when we hear, fear not. Unto you a child is born. A Savior is given. Schultz is a genius. And I want you to know that. Well, they're lowly men. The angel is sent to proclaim the good news where the gospel's preached for the first time. And it's good news of great joy. And you know who it's for? Unto you. It's personal. It's intimate, it's for you, 
the lowliest, the weakest, the most marginalized, the nobodies among all the somebodies He's born for you. And then the Luke, or the angel, I guess, gives us the description of Jesus. Three, three words that are put together here that you find together, really nowhere else, although they are all true nonetheless. He is the Savior, who is Christ, the Lord, unto you. It's the last time the angels will be the preachers of the gospel, by the way. This honor will now be entrusted with men and women and children and the shepherds. We're the first of all of us. Well, I want you to look at verse 13. Um, it says, suddenly there was an angel with the angel, or suddenly with the angel, a multitude of the heavens, a uh, multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God. It, it's, it's actually a breathtaking scene when you think about it for a second. The one angel left the shepherds shaking in their boots. Can you imagine what the picture of an army of angels would have done? Maybe think about it this way. It takes one angel to deliver the news. It takes an army of angels to respond to it. And they sing, glory to God in the highest. It gives us an idea of the magnitude of the event. They're like the, the first Christmas carolers. You ever been Christmas caroling? You know, it's like this, you know, willed act of humility. The heavens come and carol the nobodies. Peace on earth. Caesar Augustus was summoning the world under peace. The Pax Romana. He was doing it to increase the burden of taxes. God was summoning the world to fulfill His Word. To establish the throne in His Son. To uphold His promises with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. The next time you see an army of angels, do you know when it is? It's Revelation chapter 5. It's toward the end of all ends, and there, there's a scroll there, and it has these seals, and inside the scroll is, the, is kind of the last chapter, it's the, it's the last word, it's, the, it's the, the real beginning of the real end, you know, and, and everybody's been waiting for the end to come, for God's kingdom to finally come into fruition, and, and there's this, this uh, uh, you know, one of the angels asks the question, well, who's worthy to open the scroll and, and to break its seal? In fact, John, the Revelation writer, he becomes very anxious about this. And then finally, you see that the myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands of angels begin to sing. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing the next time we hear their chorus. Well, I want to show you one last thing, and then I'll, I'll end it. But in verse 12, look at what it says. It says, for unto you, a, uh, and, and this will be the sign for you, the angel tells the shepherds. 
This is going to be the sign. This will be the sign. You're going to go there and you're going to see the sign. Well, what's the sign? And here's the sign. That you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. It's kind of overwhelming if you think about it. So it's a sign announced by the angels. It's a heavenly sign. It's a sign from God. It's a sign that will unmistakably bear witness to the fact that God has become man and dwells among us, that the Christ is here, that salvation is here, that the King is here, that He is the Lord. And the sign is that you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a stone feed trough. What's the sign? It's going to be a baby wrapped up like a mummy laying in a stone trough. It looks like a tiny coffin. That's the sign. The Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the, the Word, the, the Beloved, the High King of the universe and of all creation, He enters the world in a cave, born in poverty in the midst of scandal of a teenage girl, welcomed by smelly night shift shepherds, and greeted with what have, would have looked like grave clothes and a coffin. That's the sign. And then it all, the sudden, begins to make sense once you get near the end of the story. See, Luke, at the end of his gospel, we find Jesus dead on a cross. There's a man named Joseph, another Joseph. He comes and asks for Jesus' body. And the story tells us that he'd been looking for the kingdom of God. And by this time, everybody reading the gospel was looking for the kingdom of God. So he finds himself taking the body of Jesus off the cross. And you know what he does? He wraps him in grave clothes and lays him in a tomb cut out of stone. And in an instant, the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus come together. Jesus is dead. He'd entered the world as one of us. He'd become one of us. God became man. That's why we call it the incarnation. He gave himself to us. But that wasn't the end of the story. He gave himself for us. Not only did he take on our humanity, he clothed himself in our sin and our shame, and our rebellion. Then he takes our place in death, dies our death, wearing our grave clothes, bound in our sin. And he doesn't leave us naked, he clothes us. He takes our filthy rags. He clothes us in the robes of righteousness. He trades places with us. And here's the great thing. It doesn't end in the manger. It doesn't end at the cross. It doesn't end in the grave. It ends with Him being resurrected to new life. Three days later, there will be some folks that come to mourn Him. Those who loved Him. They're going to find the tomb open, the body gone, and the clothes lying there, folded up. The grave's empty. You know who the gospel's for? It's for these shepherds. It's for the grieving mother that came to find her son after he was dead, but he's not there. For a scandalous woman who loved Jesus, who was also present. For a friend who betrayed him. Maybe his best friend betrayed him in his greatest hour of need. In Peter. 
When you hear the good news announced, when the gospel breaks in, I don't mean, I don't mean just reading the Christmas story. I don't mean just putting up the tree and having Christmas music play in the background. I don't mean all the sentimentalism and the good feelings. And I mean, all those things are great. We, just, we should do all those things. I hope we do. But I mean when the gospel breaks in and when your eyes are open and you realize that God has surprised you and overwhelmed you and broken into your world and all of a sudden you're shaken out of the fact that this is not my story, this is His story. And you encounter His grace when you are sure what you deserve is His justice, His judgment. That you granted mercy and grace. The gift of His Son. Has it broken into your world yet? Don't let Christmas be just sentimentalism. I pray you encounter the, the Savior. I'm going to end with uh, the last couple of pages of the best Christmas pageant ever. Herdmans were cast in the play. They'd gone to all the rehearsals. And now it is the night of the pageant. The writer, the narrator of the story, her mom is the one that was putting on the pageant. This is what she says. Christmas Eve arrived. Mom didn't know what to expect. It felt like a terrible disaster was about to descend. There was the unusual chaos as the kids arrived. Little shepherds and angels were crying and cranky. They were all in the wrong place. The lights were dim. The music began. Oh, little town of Bethlehem was the cue for Mary and Joseph to enter, but the herdmans hadn't arrived. They were nowhere in sight. What was the delay? The music ended and humming was put in its place and the anticipation was building. Did the herdmans bail? Ralph and Imogene suddenly appeared. There was no shoving or pushing. They just stood there as if they weren't sure they were in the right place. Maybe it was the crowd or the dimmed lights. Mary was... Dressed in her costume, but the veil was crooked and she wore those huge earrings. Ralph looked uncomfortable on the stage. They looked more like refugees that you see on the television news. That's what it must have been like for the Holy Family. Feeling lost and out of place, uncertain what will happen next. They were stuck out in a barn. No one cared about what happened to them. They were not neat or tidy. Perhaps Mary and Joseph looked more like Imogene and Ralph than we to admit. Lima Jean held the baby up as if to, to burp it on her shoulder. I didn't know baby Jesus had colic. That's the whole point, isn't it? Jesus was born, lived, and would die. He was a real person. The night the baby, uh, this night, the baby seemed more real than all the other Christmas Eves. Next, Gladys stomped in. Her dirty sneakers stuck out from under her robe. Her halo was crooked. Since Gladys was the only one in the pageant who had anything to say, she made the most of it. Hey, unto you a child is born. She hollered as if it was for sure the best news in the world. All the shepherds trembled, sore afraid. Probably more of Gladys, but it looked good anyway. 
Then Leroy, Claude, and Ollie came in, but they didn't have the glass bath bead jars that were used in the other years. They, they came in as the Magi and, and, and quietly placed a ham at the feet of Mary and the baby. Well, Barbara, she knew where it came from. She'd seen her dad work at the church Christmas committee to prepare family food baskets for the poor, and each basket got a ham. This was the Herdman's Christmas charity ham. People had never known these kids to give anything away before. And when it was time for the cast to exit, the Hermans, they must have forgot. They just stayed there. They were quiet, just taking the whole scene in. There was this mysterious serenity that took over the place. The lights dimmed more and the candles were lit by people in the pews and everyone began to sing Silent Night. And Barbara looked over at Imogene and she was crying. The story she had never heard before. She found herself in the midst of. And Imogene Herdman was crying. In the candlelight, her face was all shiny with tears, and she didn't even bother to wipe them away. She just sat there. Awful old Imogene in her crookedy veil, crying and crying and crying. The tears streamed down her face as she clutched the baby doll tightly. Awful old Imogene. Crooked veil, huge earrings, a smudged face, sitting there crying. It was the best Christmas pageant ever. And this was the funny thing about it. For years I'd thought about the wonder of Christmas and the mystery of Jesus' birth and never really understood it. But now, because of the Herdmans, it didn't seem so mysterious after all. When Imogene had asked me what the pageant was about, I told her it was about Jesus. That was just part of it. It was about a new baby and his mother and father. and They were in a lot of trouble and they had no money and no place to go and no doctor and nobody knew them. And then arriving from the east, like my uncle from New Jersey, some rich friends. But Imogene, I guess, she didn't see it that way. Christmas just came over her all at once. Like a case of the chills or a fever. and She was crying and she was walking into furniture and afterwards there were candy canes and little tiny testaments for everyone and a poinsettia plant for my mother from the whole Sunday school and we put the costumes away and folded up the collapsible manger and just before we left, my father snuffed out the last tall white candle. I guess that's everything, he said as we stood in the back of the church. All over now, it was quite a pageant. Then he looked at my mother. What's that you've got? What's the ham, she said. They wouldn't take it back. They wouldn't take any of the candy either, or the little Bibles. But Imogene did ask me for a set of Bible story pictures, and she took out the Mary picture and said it was exactly right, whatever that means. I think it meant that no matter how she saw herself, Imogene liked the idea of the Mary in that picture, all pink and white and pure-looking as if she'd ever washed the dishes or cooked supper or did anything at all except have Jesus on Christmas Eve. But as far as I'm concerned, Mary's always going to look a lot like Imogene Herdman. Nervous, bewildered, ready to clobber anybody that laid a hand on her baby. When we came out of the church that night, it was cold and clear with crunchy snow underfoot and bright and bright stars overhead. And I thought about the angel of the Lord, Gladys, with her skinny legs and her dirty sneakers sticking out from under the robe, yelling, every, yelling at, at all of us everywhere, hey... Unto you a child is born. 
indeed. A child is born. His name's Jesus. He came to change the world, but he also came to change every one of our lives. It comes for all of us. Even kids like the herdmans, even like the shepherds in the field. What my prayer for you is, does this be a great Christmas for you? In all the ways, with all the traditions and all the things that you do, but more than that, do you have a moment? Christmas would break into your Christmas. That Jesus would overwhelm you with His grace. That you would find yourself surprised all over again. Or maybe surprised for the very first time. By the gift of God's grace. That came in His Son and through His Son for you. And if you get through Christmas and that's the gift that you do not receive, then you've missed all of it. Missed all of it. So that's my prayer. And if you would, would you bow with me? And I'll dismiss us. Um, I'll pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we do pray.